You are heirs. You are inheritors. Yesterday, I tried to convince those of you who were here that you're the house God is building, that he tore down the tent of man in the body of the one man, Jesus Christ, and then rebuilt him not only from dust, but also from heaven, an everlasting man, the Christ, but then by that very same resurrected body and blood, he enters into you to make you his temple, you his house, both individually and as a people. And then, of course, I didn't mention this enough yesterday, that the Holy Spirit of the living God continues to dwell in you. This very same spirit Isaiah spoke of, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear. The fear of the Lord. If you want to know what makes you different from your friends and neighbors who are not Christian and increasingly barbaric, it is that you fear God. And they don't. We've had more than a generation now being taught they're just monkeys. They're just animals. And you can see they believe it. But not so you. You are the house God promised David. You are the people that will live forever. You are the heirs of the promise of eternal life. Now in our text from Galatians, what Paul wants to convince you of is that as an heir, therefore God is your father now. We talk about this, we pray in his name, but I'm not sure how often we really understand what it means. I'll be the chief of sinners and say to you that it is hard for me to imagine God as my father. It is hard for me to imagine God as just wanting me, as just being glad that I'm here as just wanting to give me the best of all good things, I tend to think of God more as a strict judge. That if I slip up here or slip up there, woe to me. But that's not the way a father thinks. Now, to be sure, there are human fathers who are great failures. But even amongst those who do not fear God, most fathers dote on their children. They long for their children. They could never not love their children. And that is what you have become an heir to in the sight of Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, who brought this place out of the ancient waters and established it so that it goes on and on, even though we continue to perish and die. Now, where Paul picks up that in verse 1, if you want to look at it in your bulletin, it's right there for you. He is talking about the difference between being an heir, a son, and a slave. And for us, this is about our mindset, the very thing I just talked about. How do you view God? He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. I began reading a book I read many years ago. It's a historical fiction novel. I can kind of recommend it. There's a few R-rated moments in it, so do be careful. But it's James Clavell's Shogun. And it's about a Portuguese ship with an English pilot on it that crashes uh, 
shipwrecks more or less into Japan. They're trying to go around the globe and they're trying to get to Japan. But by the time they get there of five ships, there's one left. And of all the crew, there's 10 people left. And the main character is the pilot. He is the one who navigates, not the captain, but the one who reads the the stars and the waves. The thing that's most compelling about this story is the way that it gets into the strange, I truly say, alien culture of medieval Japan. A place wherein death was preferred to life the moment you made one serious mistake if you were a samurai. The shame is too much. May I commit seppuku, please? And they would do it. One of the other things coming out of that then is the strict chain of authority. That everyone is the vassal to someone else and your job is always to immediately serve. And if you were to fail to serve again, that is shame. They're driven by a fear of God, though not like we Christians. They're driven by a fear of being anything less than perfect in the sight of the the memory of them to their ancestors. Now, all of this is to get us to the point where in this story, all of Japan has been conquered recently by a man who rose from low to high. And he set up a bunch of rules to put in place the safety of his son, who is seven years old, and he dies. I don't know he was planning to die, but he dies. There are five great daimos that are trying to, uh, powerful men that are vying for position, all while this seven-year-old boy grows up to inherit the realm. Now, I won't go further into the story. I actually haven't read much further, so I don't remember now. But the idea here is very illustrative, I think, right? That this, as Americans, we have nothing like this, where like a seven-year-old would have the entire what, government held in abeyance for eight years until he's old enough to just walk in and be in charge and everyone would bow down to him and say, you're in charge. But that way of thinking is the ancient way of thinking until the modern world and its enlightenment caused us to recognize that bloodlines do not always come with heirs of great wisdom and power. That is a son who is weak and foolish may be born to a wise and good king We have therefore cast off the idea of monarchy and the inheritance of power. The challenge for us as Christians is not to say, well, let's go back to that, but to recognize that's how Christianity works. Christianity is about inheriting what the Son has. And that has been left for you as an ultimate promise, which you will receive in fullness on the day of judgment. On the day when Jesus separates his sheep from the goats of this age who do not desire at all to have that fear of God. So that as long as you are a child in this kind of thinking, you are going to be trapped in slavery. As long as you do not understand what maturity in Christianity means, you're going to be driven by the law. That's where he's going with this. That the difference between being a slave or a son who is too young to understand is the difference between knowing whether or not God is looking to judge you or whether or not God is looking to save you. As long as you are thinking he is there to judge you, you are a slave. And not a slave to him, but a slave to this world. Under, as verse 2 says, guardians and managers until the date set by his father. That's more of the metaphor of the son. But he is also then talking about how, 
for Old Testament Israel and the law of Moses and the codes and the restrictions that kept them a very tight-knit people for many, many years that the seed born of woman could come according to the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all the way down to being born in Bethlehem. Those codes were there, again, as guardians and managers. But then he makes a jump now. And he says that for all of us who are Christians, we're no different in where we came from. That is the pagan world. So whereas the Hebrews were under codes and restrictions set by God, we, it says verse 3, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, that phrase, elementary principles, can mean a lot of different things. Geometry is an elementary principle of the world. Gravity is an elementary principle of the world. But for the ancient world that hadn't had God purged from their imagination the way we modern people have, the elementary principles of the world were never disentangled from what we would call the heavens and the earth. That is, that in the heavens there are spiritual things that we cannot see. That behind this whole reality are angels and demons at war with each other. Light and darkness vying for control of this age. And that then again, pagans, unbelievers, those who do not know that God is their father, according to the promises given in Jesus Christ, are enslaved to that battle with the darkness again. The darkness being the driving and controlling factor of their hearts and their minds. That is, they drink the cup of demons. And the sooner that we Christians wake up and realize that those who are not with us are against us, the better off we will be in our own personal, conscientious, heartfelt, and pious war against those who worship the demons. If you haven't yet read the introduction voice of the shepherd this morning on the front of your bulletin, I encourage you to do so. There is a statue of a demon in the Capitol Rotunda in Springfield, Illinois. They put it up next to the statue of baby Jesus. If that does not wake you up to let you know that you live amongst evil people, then nothing will. Enslaved to the demons. That's how we were, he says, too. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, that shorthand for when Jesus came and lived and died and rose, God sent forth his Son, Here's the promise, right? Born of woman from of old, Eve's promise fulfilled. Born under the law that is in our curse. With God's wrath set against him as his judgment against us. To redeem those who were under the law, we suppressed by the powers and principalities of the devil's lies. So that, here's your gospel, so that you might receive adoption as sons. Ah, it's easy to get lost in debates about man and woman these days. What is a man? What is a woman? And once upon a time when these debates were popular in the churches, texts like this would be used to support women's ordination. Look, we're all sons. We're all males. Now go ahead and ordain whoever you want. I hope at this point the insanity of what that does to churches can be seen. Another bit of news from this week you may have missed. Maybe it was last week. Uh, an ELCA church, somewhere in these here United States, having a transgender man dressed as a woman with a little, little skimpy outfit doing the children's sermon, teaching the children. Uh, 
it just keeps going. It's, it's not going to stop, right? But you, again, are called out. You are set apart. You are christened by the waters of your holy baptism to have the fear of God. And say, whoa, that's evil. The confusion and the chaos, that will destroy. You, again, have been redeemed, bought back from being under the law, thinking that you will be judged based upon what you do to receive adoption as sons that then desire to be like their father. This is another part of that example, right? So just as a father always loves his children, dotes on his children, wants his children near him, so also, what do sons do? Fathers, you know this. It's, it's not what you say, is it now? Uh, now, if sons do what you do, and they imitate you, they're a chip off the old block and all this kind of thing, well, so also, the pouring out of the Spirit of God into you by means of word and sacrament, by means of what the Scriptures say, and the washing of regeneration, and the feasting upon the body and blood of Christ will awaken in you a desire to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. Which more than anything else you know means to have mercy. That's how they've been taking advantage of us, you know, is our mercy. They know that we care. And so they lie and they use mercy against us to try to get us to do what they want, to, to silence us. Now, I'm, I'm not saying cease to be merciful. I am saying you don't have to be silenced. And that mercy looks a lot more like having a conversation with someone in which you tell the truth even though they yell at you. And you're all right. I'll take your hate. And I'll return you again my gentle admonition and my love. Verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And nowhere else is this lived out more in Christianity than in the regular and constant repetition of the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father who art in heaven. I know when we pray that prayer in church, it can be one of those moments where you've said it so often that it just kind of goes by, right? Like the brain has a way of just checking out, especially as we have trained ourselves in modern America to be uh, uh, entertained and, and titillated by all the most novel things. We always want something new, something more interesting, something, something fascinating to keep us excited. And so something comes along that is old and it's not always easy to pay attention to. But the point here in saying the Lord's Prayer again and again every week, and I highly recommend you pray it in the morning as well, every morning when you wake up. The point is not that you would always know every part of every moment and have your spirit perfect. The point is that you would be reminded that God is your Father. That when Jesus comes to be your judge, it's not a question of how he will judge. The judgment has already been given crowned with your thorns, crucified on your cross, nailed to your death. He has already made you one with him eternally so that you are free to call out Abba, Father. And again, to bring it back to locality, Springfield and that satanic statue that they put up there, what's the first thing to do? Is it to go fix it? The answer is no. The answer is to call out Abba, Father. Preserve us, save us, bring back Christ. Bring the day of everlasting life where we'll be free from this veil of tears. Above all, then, remembering verse 7, that you are no longer a slave but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God, an heir to the promises. I will probably continue to repeat this idea a lot in the new year, uh, in part because I myself am continuing to struggle with it. And so part of what you get as a parish is the internal spiritual struggle of your pastor. And I can say that it has been a hard reckoning for me to realize how little I look forward to the end of the world and how much hope I put in America getting better. This last two years has made that very clear to me, that my treasure has been here. What that creates is despair. And if the despair hasn't hit you yet, it will. And if it never does, that's a bad thing. For that despair is there to wake you up and remind you that here is but a temporary place. That our creed teaches us to look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That this life, no matter how good it may be and may you have blessings abundant, this life is this, short, this little speck of life. And then it ends in dust, ashes, pain, and sadness. But the life that you have inherited, the thing that makes you an heir, is an everlasting life. I can't say how long it will be because it's infinite. It will go on again and again. Today will always be today, only without the sin, without the missing of the mark, without the pain and the sorrow, but with the people with your brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors in Christ, with the inheritance of all those who came before, Simeon and Anna and David and Solomon, and with all those who will yet come, those who will be baptized soon here. We have a baptism of an infant next week. What a joy. The many people washed into Jesus Christ, given the promise of his name and made heirs again. What are you heirs of? The knowledge that God is your Father. That he is for you, not against you. And that if you would see better days, the answer is to turn and cry out, Abba, Father, please, knowing that he does indeed desire always to give good and perfect gifts to his son. In the name of Jesus, amen.